From the EPR Creation Studio, this is the Unconquered Podcast. As always, I'm Jason Staples. And as always, this show is brought to you by EPR Creations. EPR Creations partners with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning. If you have any need for an improved internet presence or you want to improve your marketing, call EPR Creations, let you know you heard about them from this podcast. That is the Unconquered Podcast. And also, while you're at it, go ahead and uh, sign the petition, showthesafeties.com. EPR Creations helped very, very quickly and cheaply put that together for me. So that's a, a good example of uh, what they can do for you very, very quickly. So uh, today's going to be a, a a mailbag episode after uh, basically a pretty uneventful week, looking at uh, some coaching stuff and hearing all sorts of rumors and everything else, as is always the case. Really not a whole lot going on other than... Uh, Florida State in preparation for the Florida game and really nothing to report there. Uh, hasn't been a whole lot of stuff of interest. So I will address a lot of the questions that have come in that I've not been able to get to so far since Willie Taggart's firing and since Florida State started uh, started the search. So we'll go ahead and get right to it. First one, really, uh, really a lot of interesting questions this week. Uh, the first one, I'm going to go with uh, with this one. Do you think Florida State gave Willie Taggart a fair shot? That's a really good question. Uh, so this is this is a bit of a complicated question because I do think that Florida State tried to win on the cheap, and you know I know that I I talked with people on Willie's staff who told me directly, wow, Jimbo was right about this place and Jimbo wasn't lying. That's what they said. So that was already the feeling uh, well before Willie ever got, got fired. And really before this season started, that was actually a conversation from before the uh, 2019 season started and there was a feeling that Florida State was trying to nickel and dime things in a way that was not conducive to having the success that they wanted. Uh, and I don't think that Florida State or the boosters gave the kind the, the the kind of support that ultimately a coach needs. And I don't I don't think this was true also at the end of Jimbo's tenure as well. I don't think that Florida State has supported their last two coaches at the level that they need to in order for them to have the most success that they could. So I don't think that, that Florida state has done everything uh, in the best way possible to help their coaches succeed. Um, And that's why Jimbo Fisher is not on the, on campus. Jimbo Fisher fought for everything he got at Florida state and really ultimately just got tired of the fight. You know, and and again, uh, somebody I know who talked to Jimbo, Shortly after he got to uh, Texas A&M, I think I mentioned this on the podcast, but uh, asked Jimbo, you know, how's it going out there? And Jimbo said, well, you know, I've, I've been here three weeks and I've already had, I've already uh, had the, uh, the head of the booster organization call me three different times saying, Hey, is, what, is there anything we can do for you? Is there anything, anything that you've noticed that we need? And he said, man, I was here 10 years and I didn't get three calls from the booster president from Andy Miller. So that says something there. 
partly because he and Miller hated each other. But basically, uh, Florida State has not been in a position where they've they've been fully invested. And when I say Florida State, I don't just mean the administration itself, those who are on the payroll at Florida State. I mean the, the top-level boosters and so on. And the I don't want to get too specific here, but basically the other money that needs to be not on the table, as it were, but available uh, in order to ensure the best possible outcomes uh, that, you know, that certain uh, bags need to be in place in order for Florida state to be able to recruit. And, you know, and in the Southeast right now, that's absolutely the, the case. It's more the case than ever with, you know, Saban disciple at, uh, at Georgia, the Saban disciple at Tennessee. Now, uh, also, uh, with what's going on at Texas A&M with all those resources, good luck in Clemson, good luck recruiting the Southeast. If you have nothing but your logo to come and, and, uh, and recruit with for some of these top players. And, uh, you know, I, I, I said it two years ago that a person who had previously been on Jimbo Fisher's staff, who left shortly after Willie Taggart took over said, look, we're in a position where we, I, I won't quote exactly what he said, but look, we're, we're in a position where the only way we get a kid is if that kid really wants to be at Florida state, because that's, he, he just wants to be a seminal. And other programs aren't like that right now. So that was absolutely the case with Willie Taggart. That was absolutely a limitation toward the end with Jimbo Fisher. Uh, and that, that, that's been a fact for the last two coaches. And the game in the Southeast in particular is, is a little different. You have, to be able, you have to be willing to play that game. And you're going to have to spend that money in order to make that money in, with, with the success that you're going to get in, in return. So did Florida State give him a fair shake? In that respect, he didn't get the support that I think he expected and that he ultimately needed. But I'm going to flip that around and say that I do think Florida State overall gave Willie a fair shot in terms of he still had the opportunity to, had he won the games that he should have won, given the talent that was already on the field he'd still be coaching. But I'd say 80% of the games that, that Taggart lost at Florida State were games that really, talent-wise, even with the offensive line situation, talent-wise, you shouldn't lose those games at Florida State. And a lot of it goes back to the defense. Coming into this year, the defense had, in terms of just overall raw talent on the field, guys, as, as you know, in terms of the guys that were actually out there as potential starters, they had, what, five, five stars? as starters. I mean, the whole defense, basically the entire two deep nearly was former blue chip prospects. I mean, there's talent on the defense. That defense shouldn't be given up a ton of yards and points, but they did both years. And at a certain point, you got to say, well, you know, yeah, you got problems on offense, but you know, start structuring it so that your defense doesn't give up a ton of points and you can win some games defensively. But they didn't, they couldn't. And when you can't leverage the secondary that they had, and when you make mistakes like having nine coaches instead of 10, and then you suck at the, at the place where you've got a ton of talent, but you, you're, you're a coach down, well, you know, at a certain point that you got, the, you got a fair shake and you just you, you blew it. So I do think that he was given a fair shot in terms of 
the reason that he ultimately was fired was because of the product on the field. And I thought, I, I think he had the opportunity and I think he had the support necessary to put a better product on the field. And the overall level of disorganization, some of the decisions that were made organizationally, some of the, and the cultural stuff behind the scenes and some of the other stuff that was fully on, on, on Taggart. And he made a lot of mistakes, many mistakes that I think he, he himself would admit to at this point. And that's ultimately what got him fired. Now for the long haul was, did he get the support that he needed? No, but for the, for the short term, and it's the short term that got him fired. Yeah, he had enough support. And so I think they got I think they gave him enough of a shot and ultimately they did the right thing to cut bait when they did because it was not going to work. Certain things were changing but certain other stuff just wasn't. And if you listen to Odell Higgins, he, he he's been he's been real about this. Okay, next uh Next, uh, next question. Do you think this, do you think being fired surprised Willie that he was fired after the Miami game? He did not even address the players at all after he was let go. Do you think it surprised the assistant coaches on staff? I don't think any, I don't think anybody was really surprised at that point. I mean, it was one thing to lose to Miami. You get embarrassed like that by Miami and they knew that the rumblings were there and, and there had been communication with Taggart and his agent uh, about a month prior. Even though, even though uh, Coburn had denied, you know, oh, we've not had any discussions. Oh, no, no, they'd had discussions. I'd been told uh, it was well before. It was, got to remember what game it was. But it was a much earlier loss um, where they already had, had already had had discussions. And, you know, that it was, it was already basically a situation where it had been communicated. You're going to have to win this many games or you're gone. And once they lost to Miami, then the chance of getting to that number was pretty slim. So, I mean, they, they, they cut bait at that point. So, uh, do I think it surprised the assistant coaches? No, no, I don't. I also don't. I mean, these guys, these guys don't live in a complete vacuum. They, they know that ultimately you're, you're paid based on performance and they're not surprised. And some of those assistants were extremely dissatisfied with the leadership up above them. So that's another factor. All right. Next question. Would Willie Taggart have a job (laughs) <laughs> how much different would the Taggart era have been if they had not turned away Indiana's quarterback, Michael Penix? Would Willie Taggart still have a job if they had taken Penix? I don't think it would be that different. No, I, I don't think Penix is a good enough quarterback and nor a good enough fit that he would have been a job saver. Now, if they'd managed to land Sam Howell, maybe. If they'd have been able to land Jalen Hurts or you know, somebody like, uh, like Justin Fields. Yeah. Then Willie Taggart still has a job, but Penix, No, I don't think that would have made that big of a difference, but, um, yeah, it's a good question. All right. Next question. Can you do a podcast on the mistakes made by Willie and what he would have done differently the second time around? Um, honestly, I'm not going to get into all of the mistakes across the board. I've talked about a lot of, a lot of the things, just talked about a lot of what I will talk about at this stage. Uh, maybe on some later episodes, something will come up just because it comes up, but I, I don't want to dwell on certain things. And, and, and at this point, it's not worth kicking a guy while he's down at that point either. Uh, and, you know, beating, beating a dead horse there. I will address the second question though, which is why did Willie Taggart want to be friends with all the players instead of being their coach or supervisor? He wanted to be uncle Willie. <laughs> Well, you know, that's a good question. And I think a lot of this comes, comes back to, uh, 
I think they misread the cultural situation at the beginning, partly because some of the voices that they were listening to when they first uh, got into town were not te- were not helpful. Uh, actually, uh, hindered them in terms of their being able to evaluate some things, uh, because ultimately they came into town believing that Jimbo Fisher had basically been a slave driver and had been too hard on his players, and that his players just basically needed someone to believe in them and to be less of a uh, less of a taskmaster and more getting them uh, up. And, and, and picking them up and, and, and building their confidence up rather than beating them down and berating them th- verbally and all of that. And so they wanted to basically flip the culture that way. When in fact, and I, I had said this toward the end of the Fisher uh, tenure, as those of you who've listened to this for a long time uh, will recall, that that image of Fisher was actually mistaken. Fisher would would chew guys out, but the real problem that was going on at the end with Fisher was the lack of discipline. It was the lack of being hard enough on certain players. And, you know, some of that goes back to some promises that it's... So I want to take a step back to think about some of the stuff that happened when Fisher was at Florida State. It's much, it's much harder to be to be hard on guys that you recruited. It's easy to be the guy that's going to chase off and flip the culture when you're chasing off the other guys' uh, uh, recruits because you didn't make any promises to those guys. They're not your guys. So when Fisher takes over initially, he's able to do some of that. And also Monk Bonasort was a big factor there. But then once he had made some promises to certain guys, when you promise a kid, or when you even 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 more the case, when you promise a kid's dying mother. I will make sure your kid graduates no matter what. You're kind of in a bind if you're going to honor that that promise. You know, when you promise a dying grandmother this or that, and then the kid comes in and is a turd, you can't kick it. Like, if you kick that kid off the team, or if you do whatever, then you're violating your promise. And you made that promise. And if you actually think that promise is, is worth something, or in some cases, you promise something maybe to a, uh, to you know, to a program or or, or to a, a coach, and and it's known again within that uh, that that world that you're going to honor that promise or not. That's going to fa- that's going to be a factor for future recruiting. So now that kid's a turd, and you're going to have to keep him around, and he's going to toxicify the rest of the program. And that's a lot of what happened toward the end of Fisher is there were a few guys that some promises had been made and some promises about, you know, making sure that this, that this guy would be shepherded through. And it was, you know, it didn't work out. Well, then the, the new guys came in, but they were told basically that Fisher and those guys were constantly berating these players and all of that. And what they needed was somebody to step in and really believe in them and be their friend, essentially. And that's the direction that he took. And it was the wrong, obviously the wrong decision. Uh, and I know, I mean, I, I talked to the, to the, uh, to some folks in the Taggart staff when they first got in and said, you know, you're going to have to be seriously, you're going to have to be disciplinarians, especially with this player, this player, this player, and you're going to have to deal with these guys because they'll find each other and this is going to be a problem. So I know that they'd heard that, but I also know that they'd heard some other things. And, and ultimately I, I think they believed some of that and made some of the, some of the decisions that again, 
in terms of culture, I think they made some mistakes there. And I think that's something that Taggart and his, uh, and the people that he brought with him would, would probably concede at this point that, yeah, they needed to be harder up front and make some guys earn some things and maybe be a little bit more, uh, uh, of the disciplinarian rather than the player's coach up front. And then eventually you could uh, earn the, the, the affection of your players in a different way. But, um, but I think that a lot of that goes to just, again, a misread of the situation up front. And, you know, once you start that way, it's much harder to become, to go the disciplinarian route after the fact, uh, because guys don't respect you the same way. So it's hard to do. Uh, and I think he would do it differently the second time around in terms of making some of those decisions. Cause I mean, again, the guy's not a, he's not stupid. Uh, and you know, I just think again, there were some bad decisions made up front because not all of the information was well known or understood up front. So yeah. Um, let's see. Um, did I see, so did you see a difference in the play calling the last couple of weeks with Willie not being there and always being in Kendall Bryle's ear? Actually, I saw the bigger difference in play calling on the defense. So I talked about this the last podcast, but uh, defensively, they they basically scrapped the 3-4 type stuff that they'd been doing, the tight front emphasis 3-4 stuff, and went completely to Harlan Barnett's comfort zone, which was 40G, cover four defense. With, you know, Really, it's Saban's cover seven, which is a, a quarters defense with checks built in uh, that – Basically, that's what they're doing. And, it, you know, they were like 50% 40G cover four slash Saban class, uh, cover seven this week. Uh, and, you know, if you go back to the Miami game, they ran almost none of that and ran about 50% tight front and about 85% uh, odd front. So, you know, it's a totally different, totally different defense than what they were running before. And, you know, that's another midseason switch schematically, and it's just so hard to do. And it puts you to, it puts you in a bind schematically because you can't really add any wrinkles or checks at this point that you you know to prepare for specific stuff. You're just trying to get sound. You're trying to get fundamentally sound, and right now they're not. But you know that's ultimately what they're doing. But I know that defensively, uh, some of the coaches on that defensive staff are breathing a sigh of relief because they can finally game plan without ultimately the head coach walking in and saying, you guys are making this too complicated. What I want is this. And then drawing something up that the coaches, the defensive coaches are looking at each other like, he really doesn't understand what's going on here. And I can tell you for a fact that that was happening. Um, so, you know, that's that's where the biggest difference is. I and mean, Kendall, Kendall Bryles is going to run his stuff. And, you know, there, were, there was more synergy offensively in terms of what Taggart wanted to do and what Bryles wanted to do in terms of scheme than uh, – than there was defensively. There was a disconnect with the defensive staff in terms of what Taggart wanted to do versus what the defensive assistants ultimately were best equipped to do and wanted to do. Uh, and so that's where the biggest difference has been. The, the other big difference has been just watching Jordan Travis out there. Uh, but schematically, less of a difference offensively. A lot of that stuff is, is very similar. Uh, and play calling wise, it's, it's, it's pretty similar. Maybe a few additional uh, option plays rather than, you know, some of the... Uh, some of the uh, standard just run plays, a little bit more, a little bit more pull, pull read option type stuff. All right, let's see. Um, can I be more upfront about the relationship between Bryles and Willie? Was Bryles getting frustrated with Willie? I can answer the latter one. Yes, he was at different points, but I can also say that 
having been on an offensive staff on multiple offensive staffs, I've yet to be on an offensive staff where the offensive coordinator was not frustrated with the head coach at some point, And ultimately where I was not frustrated with the coordinator at some point, guys get frustrated with each other on coaching staffs. That's just the reality. And if you're not winning every game, and even if you are winning every game, there's frustration that spills over. That's, that's just a fact. You're, you're pretty much, you know, and the only time the head coach is not frustrated with the offensive coordinator and the offensive coordinator is not frustrated with the head coach at some point in the season is if the head coach is the offensive coordinator. And even then, sometimes <laughs> there's still frustration. So, yes, uh, there were times where Bryles was, was frustrated, but uh, not more than the norm, I would say, in that regard. Uh, you know, what, what I, I, I do know that going back to the spring when I'd talked to Bryles, uh, there were some things that he wanted to do that he felt like his hands were tied and they weren't able to do as much as, as much in certain areas as they, as he wanted. But he also was very honest about that and said, look, I mean, I get it. I'm a, I'm not the head coach and you know, you have to adjust to what the head coach wants and there's a vision that's put in place. And, and so we'll do what we need to do. We'll make it work. And so, you know, that's, that, that relationship was, was better than I think a lot of people think it was. Uh, you know, even three, four weeks before the, uh, before the termination of the, uh, of, of Taggart, uh, I know that, uh, someone, I, someone I'm, uh, fairly close to had talked to, uh, to Clements and Clements had said, well, no, no, we're, you know, everything's fine. I mean, you know, things are pre- pretty good between, you know, Kendall and, and me and, and, uh, and, and Willie. So, you know, I think overall there's always frustration uh, I know that anytime you're an offensive coordinator and the head coach steps in to dictate certain play calls or stick, steps in to, to have input during during a series or whatever, you get frustrated, especially when you, you believe that the, that it's really important that you get the call in without any discussion between plays and that it comes from you because that's part of the whole thing. And that's one of the things you're, you're, you're seeing now is that uh, the plays are getting in more quickly. That's another big difference is that there's no discussion uh, because nobody else has the play sheet and basically, uh, Bryles is calling the plays period. And that means there's no, de- I mean, it's, it's immediate. So there's no delay. Uh, so they can go a little bit faster, but, uh, but really, I mean, I don't think it was, uh, it was certainly not a toxic situation from, from what I, from what I gathered. So, uh, you know, at least nothing that I, nothing that I was privy to. So, uh, could it, could it have been better? Of course. But again, that's head coaches and, and offensive coordinators. And I think a lot of people don't understand the degree to which that's true on most teams. Because again, coaches have each have their own vision and you know there's a, there's a chain of command and good coordinators ultimately submit and say, okay, well, you know what? If you want to huddle up, I'm going to huddle up. I'm, I'm a no huddle guy, but you know, you want to huddle this year? Well, we're, you know, that's the vision. So I'm going to go ahead and install it. I ain't going to like it, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to make it work. You know, I've been on staffs where that's, that's been the order business. So, well, you know, I, I run a read scheme and you're saying you don't want to read right now. You just want to hand it off with no read option available, which makes it harder for us to block. And we feel like you don't understand that as the head coach, but you know what? You're the head coach. We're going to make that work. That happens. I've been on two different staffs where, where that's, that's been the case at different points. And largely because, you know, maybe you make a bad read and the ball ends up on the ground a couple times. And you know what head coaches are allergic to is turnovers. So, <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, let's see. Uh, is Anthony Grant going to be on the team next year? Or is he transferring? I have no idea. I don't know what the situation with Grant is other than that uh, he's not been out there. So uh, that's something I, I don't have any information on uh, beyond. I have no more information on that than anybody else. So uh, I'm, I've not asked about it. Probably should at some point, but uh, hasn't been something I have any information on. All right. Um, let's see. <laughs> Ooh, this one's a good one. So question about Odell Higgins. Did he not try to forewarn Taggart of the, mis of the missteps he was taking with his handling of the players? Odell has been around forever, and he's been around every player on the team since they stepped on campus. Was it a thing of Taggart not listening to Odell's advice? Well, uh, yes. At the end there, it was a thing that was... So yes, um, Odell... First of all, Odell doesn't talk a lot. You know, Odell is not a guy who... Uh, is going to air his opinions a bunch in terms of, you know, uh, he's not a, he's not a dominating presence in that regard. Now, if you make room for him to talk or if there's something that he really has to say, he's going to say it and his voice is going to carry weight and the guy can motivate. But he's not somebody that's just going to come in and, and rock the boat a bunch. But Odell did have some things to say. Odell did have some places where he ultimately disagreed with uh, with the direction of where things were going and didn't like it. And there was some conflict there. And, you know, quite frankly, Odell uh, was, uh, he was at the end of his leash. He was at the end of his rope in terms of uh, frustration with how things were being handled culturally. And uh, what he felt was not Florida State culture, was not Florida State football and believed that um, things needed to be done a different way. And ultimately that led to some conflict between the two of them. And yeah, Taggart ultimately did not, uh, he was not interested, not as interested in what Odell had to say. And this is actually one of Taggart's other big mistakes ultimately is that Taggart wanted at least, and this is my read on it from just knowing some of the other stuff that happened is as far as I can tell, Taggart wanted to run things his way. And there was a sense of, it seems like he felt a little bit threatened with some of the people who had been around before him. Some of the people who'd been instrumental in prior Florida state success and Florida state culture and Taggart sort of wanted some of those guys around and some of them specifically, he had his guys, but then there were others that seemed, he seemed threatened by and regarded as, you know, potentially not as loyal to him. And, I think Odell fell, fell more on the second side of that and was not quite in the inner circle in that regard. Uh, and, you know, I, anything he had to say there was not really ultimately, uh, at least the, the, from what has been delivered to me, the, the feeling from, from that side of things is that ultimately Taggart really didn't want to hear some of the stuff from that side of things. And, you know, you can look at Mickey Andrews, for example, deciding to stop coming out because of the frustration with how things, how certain things were done. That is, again, a, a good example of that, uh, where, you know, look, this is how things have been done at Florida State. This is what Florida State culture has been. And what you're doing right now isn't it. And, you know, you can see immediately on some of the stuff that that Hagan's uh, changed immediately. Well, that stuff is stuff that had chafed him previously. It's like, you know, this is not Florida State. This is not 
this is an entitled culture that we're not that that is not what I believe in, and it's not what what made us successful before. And you know, he made those changes immediately, and it tells you what he thought. But you know, did he say anything? Yeah, he said some stuff. But you know, was it was it listened to? No. And once you're not listened to, you stop saying much. You just continue to coach your position, and you do you go about your business. And that's Odell is a is really good at that stuff. He's going to go about his business. He's you set the vision, and he's going to he's going to do what you ask him to do, and he's going to do the best job possible. He's really good at what he does. All right, let's see. Final couple questions. Ah, uh, yes. Do you think Mark Stoops has a good chance to be the Florida State uh, coach? Was he well thought of by the boosters and administration while he was at FSU? I don't think actually Stoops is one of the favorites for the job. Uh, I don't know at this point whether Stoops or his representatives have been contacted, but I do know that Stoops wants the job. I mean, Stoops would uh, Stoops would run naked from Lexington to Tallahassee to get this job. To get the Florida State job, Stoops would run naked from Lexington to Tallahassee, and you know the chafing would be terrible. It would take multiple days, and you know there would be suffering involved for all. All who uh, all all involved, but he would do it because that's you know that's that's the kind of job Florida State is, and and he's he he knows enough about the job having been there that he feels like he could he could do a great job there. Was he well respected? Yeah, by the boosters and administration. Yeah, by and large. Now there were guys who were always frustrated that they felt like his uh, defense was too passive, especially in 2012. But yeah, he was respected and and uh, and all of that. But I don't think ultimately he's going to be the hire. I think they'll go for somebody who's a little bit a little bit more of a splash at this point than somebody who's been in the SEC for now seven years and has not won a division. Even though it's a, a almost impossible job at, at Kentucky, uh, you know, it's it's just I don't think that that that's a hire that's going to get uh, most of most of the people involved really uh, really excited. So I think that's. I think he's one of the lower on the list guys that um, I, I don't think they'll quite get there. All right. Um, last couple. Why do you prefer Matt Campbell over PJ Fleck? Good question. Number one is I don't know. I don't know PJ Fleck. So I don't have enough personal experience of being in the room with him to say, I really know and trust this guy. And I believe this guy's a superstar. He might be, I know. And I know someone who has spent that time with him, who swears by the guy and says that guy is, and that guy's going to be the next urban Meyer. And, and that might be true, but that's number one is just in terms of, you know, I've not been in the room with PJ Fleck to really have a sense to, you know, it's, it's different when you actually get the chance to spend time in the, in someone's presence to get a sense of like, okay, this is the kind of charisma that this person actually has. This is how smart this person is. Like, is this person just, you know, canned answers and and catchphrases or whatever? Is that is there that extra je ne sais quoi that that a top level coach has to have, or not? You know, when you're in the presence of Mac Brown, you start to realize real quick why that guy's been successful. You know, you, you you if you listen to his commentary as a color commentator, you're like, man, he's wrong so much. Like, how in the world did this guy ever win? And then you spend 15 minutes with the guy, you talk with the guy, and you go, oh. <laughs> and so that's part of it. Is you know, PJ is a guy that all I really know of PJ is is watching watching his teams sort of from the outside. I've not studied any of his film. 
uh, at any in, with any level of depth, uh, and I and I don't know him. Uh, whereas with Campbell, I've actually bro- I've looked closely at what Iowa State does defensively. I've you know Campbell goes back to the University of Toledo where my father played, and so there you know there was connection there as a result, uh, and got a got a, a closer look at what Campbell could do as a coach because you know it was closer to some of the programs that I pay mo- more I pay closer attention to. I got to see what he did at Toledo. And, you know, the guy's a really, really good coach. And Fleck may be every bit as good. He might be better. I just don't know that. And so, you know, this is one of those things where I think, again, Campbell is one of those guys that I would, I would sign off on right now because I, I think he's that good. Uh, I just don't know if Florida State can get him. I've said that from the beginning because the guy's really happy in Ames. Uh, he's, you know, he's not in a hurry to move on to some he's – not, he's not a job hopper. He's not somebody that's going to be in a hurry to move on to the next better and brighter thing, bigger and bigger and badder job. So, you know, you're going to have to really convince him that he should make him make the move. Uh, Fleck, you know, if you offered him the right amount of money, he'd come in a heartbeat. And that, that much I'm pretty sure of, uh, you know, he's a little bit more of a, of, of, of an upward mover in that, re, in that regard. But, um, but yeah, so I, I think, and the other thing is that, you know, just in terms of defensive coordinators, if, you know, if, if you're getting Heacock with, with, uh, with Campbell, to me, Heacock is one of the best defensive coordinators in the country. You're already solving that problem. And also Campbell's an offensive line guy. I mean, in terms of development and in terms of evaluation, he's one of the best in the country. So, I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> you're solving a lot of problems here. So, uh, so yeah. Um, all right. Next question. If, uh, if, if James Franklin wants the job, do you hire him over Fleck and Campbell? Ooh, that's a good question. Because I've I have been in the room with 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 Franklin too, uh, and you know he's a charismatic guy and he has a lot of what you need. And and by the way, the one concern with with some with with Campbell is that he's such a high integrity guy that some of the things that you have to do to really recruit well in the Southeast, you wonder exactly to what degree. Uh, he's really uh, uh, comfortable with southeastern recruiting at the top level. You know that's the that's the sort of thing that is, it's a difficult thing when you actually take that job. I mean, I know that when Taggart staff took over, they were they were saying to people like, "Man, we were only out of here for a couple of years, and it's like this. Like now, wow, man, it's changed in like a year and a half, and yeah, it has. You know, George, the the Georgia change made a big difference." Um, so, you know, Franklin will have no problem recruiting the Southeast. Uh, he is charismatic. He fills a room. Uh, I think Franklin does a really good job of identifying talent and recognizing, uh, you know, who can be a good assistant uh, in, his, in his system. And he does a good job of attracting that sort of thing. You know, I think the, the benefit of Franklin is that if you get him, uh, if they could convince him to come, He's actually the the bigger name, and in terms of a splash, that's a bigger deal. Uh, as a coach, I think I think Campbell's the better coach. I think schematically, X's and O's, I think Campbell's the better coach than Franklin. Uh, I think in the short term, in terms of the bump that you get by bringing in bringing in Franklin, that's a bigger bump than you're getting by bringing in Campbell. Um, and Franklin managed to do some things at Vanderbilt that probably no one's ever going to do again. Uh, so 
it's probably a coin flip. I mean, again, I, I, I'm a little bit more familiar with, with Campbell having seen more stuff up close. So I'd probably just personally default to him, but you know, Franklin's, if you can get Franklin, you don't turn him down. So good question. All right. How, final question. What do you think of Brian Kelly from Notre Dame? <laughs> oh boy. Um, he's a really good coach and Florida state would, could do a lot worse than him. He, he would win at Florida state, but I wouldn't want him. At, I wouldn't want him to be coach of my alma mater. And, you know, I know it's funny to say that because, you know, there's just some, every coach has their own thing and all of this. And, you know, every coach has their own, every really good coach has got some personality weirdness or maybe is, is a bit of a, a donkey or whatever else, but, yeah, uh, I just I've never really liked Kelly's uh, demeanor on certain things. Um, I think he's improved in that regard since he's been at Notre Dame. But there are certain approaches to the game that he has that I'm not as I'm not as keen on. But here's the thing: if you can't get Matt Campbell, if you can't get James Franklin, you're starting to move down the list. Yeah, you know, honestly, Brian Kelly's a really good coach and you're going to you're going to you know, you go much further down the list and you're getting the guys that aren't as good a coach as he is. So, you know, would I would he be one of the guys that I'd be really excited about? No, but would he almost certainly win at Florida State? Yeah. So, that's my take on 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 Kelly. It's not not anything other than just, you know, taste in terms of the kinds of coaches that I that I like. And uh yeah, I, and I think he's a better fit at Notre Dame than he is at Florida State, just percent personality-wise. And this is something else that you know is worth noting. I've said this for some years that every program kind of has its own personality, and so and you have to get the right match between your program and the personality of the coach that you have. I actually honestly thought that Jimbo Fisher was a really really good match for Florida State just culturally, but it fell apart for a number of reasons, again, because he was, he was fighting with a lot of the people behind the scenes and also some mistakes that he made. But, you know, I thought just in terms of him being a bit, a bit country, but also being really sharp and really smart and, and, uh, and all of that being folksy enough, but being, but also being really, you know, sharp as attack and being an offensive type guy, uh, fit the program really well. Whereas with Florida, you know, just using University of Florida as an example, University of Florida, you kind of have to have an odd duck. I mean, it's got to be a guy that's a little bit of, you have to have kind of a guy with a bit of an edge that is, it's going to have to be somebody who's flashy and who's offensive, you know, offensive minded. You can't have a defensive coach at Florida, at either program, really, I don't think. Uh, I don't think a defensive coach really works well at either one. A defensive coach would work better at Florida State than at Florida. But at Florida, you're going to have to have somebody who's, you know, kind of uh, either smarmy or just a bit odd and is, uh, yeah. I mean, you think about like the things that are in common between Spurrier and, and Meyer and Mullen. Those are Florida guys. 
And honestly, a guy like Mullen is not going to fit at a place like Florida State as well as he is at a place like Florida. And a guy like Muschamp, who's a good coach, really doesn't have a chance at a place like Florida. He just personality-wise doesn't fit. He wouldn't fit at Florida State either. But there are certain places a guy like that could work. And, you know, there's, you know, Jim Harbaugh is a fit at Michigan. He just is. You know, there, there's the Michigan man that, you know, you kind of have to be that guy. And so, you know, you have to consider that. And I think ultimately Franklin, for example, would be a much better fit at a place like Florida State than I think uh, somebody like, um, like uh, Brian Kelly would be. I just don't think Kelly would be a good fit at Florida State. Uh, and, you know, you can ask the same questions about, you know, Fleck and, uh, and Campbell and all of that and, and kind of do your own math on which guys you think would be the right fit. And, you know, it's worth asking, you know, who would, who would actually be a good fit here? Um, and, you know, it's some, and you think about like Nebraska, one of the problems that Nebraska has had in recent years is they hired, you know, they hired a guy, the, the last couple of coaches that they hired with Polini and some of the others, uh, you know, Mike Riley, Mike Riley was a terrible fit in Lincoln. It didn't make any sense to bring him in there. And just the style of play that a state and, and that a program is used to that stuff matters. So, you know, that, and again, I don't think Kelly really fits, but if you wind up striking out on a few other candidates toward the top of the list and he's interested, then you probably don't turn him down because the guy can win. So yeah, interesting place for Florida state to be. I'm already over 40 minutes. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up uh, with, you know, by thanking my other sponsors, Lewis Marquez or Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. You all know plenty about Lewis. If you have any need for real estate or uh, to sell real estate in the greater Jacksonville area, let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered podcast. List your house, buy your house through him. Again, let him know where you heard about him. Garage Makeovers, top garage uh, remodeling company in South Florida. If you're in Palm Beach or Broward County, give them a holler. And also thanks to those above the bleach numbers level over at Patreon. That is Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leninger, Travis Smith, and Burt Bertoldi. And I'll get back to some other podcasting probably midweek next week. Maybe uh, do a Florida preview around midweek, somewhere late in the week. I uh, don't expect to do another one for at least until Wednesday or so of next week. Uh, but uh, we'll get to something then. And I doubt we'll we'll hear a whole lot uh, in terms of coaching search between now and then anyway. So only way that something changes is if there's an emergency. And I don't think we'll hear about anything until after the season. So that'll do it. I'm Jason Staples. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>